This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's up, y'all? Welcome back to the show. This episode has been a long time in the making. My cousin, Chris Corley, shout out over there in the corner. We're not actually cousins, but there's like, I've only run into like four Corleys in my life that I wasn't related to. So you have to assume we're probably very, very distant cousins. Um, Valadir, we've got Mark, we've got Kayla. Kayla, you're here in Houston, right? Yep. Mark, you're from Calgary. Canada let you out. Yeah. Finally, finally let me out two years. But oh will they let him back in? Will they let you back in? I find out tonight <laughs> if they do. So that, that's a real question currently. Yeah. So Valerie, I mean, you guys are, you guys have been blowing and going just kind of in my conversations with, uh, with Chris and, and some of the rest of the team um, and getting this lined up really over the past probably like four or five months. Uh, learned a lot about you guys. Um, I think there's a lot of things that you guys are really excited about. But for anybody who's listening who's not familiar with Valadier, like, who wants to take a stab at the uh, the elevator pitch? What do you guys do? Oh, oh okay, fine. I'll do it, Mark. Um, so we have an interesting backstory because we were founded uh, by a Harvard PhD applied physicist, and mm-hmm. he was working on um, counterfeit Chanel testing at the molecular level. Um, for identifying, you know, molecular parts that would not be actual perfume and people were paying high prices for it. Um, there's funding for that? There's funding. There's funding for everything, <laughs> yeah. dude. You just got to find it. Wow. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so there was a train explosion that happened in Canada. Uh, turns out the Bakken crude that was in the tanks was not um, regulated and the vapor pressure got too high. And so his lab was brought in to do some, you know, forensics um, Mm -hmm. studies after that. And so the more he, you know, kind of got involved with the energy business and understanding um, really just how opaque some of it can be from a supply chain perspective, um, that was the, you know, founding start of Validir, which actually means validate in Norwegian. Um, And so what we do is we hook into any IoT physical equipment out on location, mostly in the midstream refining space, but we play in the upstream uh, as well. We create an operations inventory of that. We help people action the visibility that they get from having all of the data in one place. And then we'll give them forecasts and predictions around what's going to happen in the future as it relates to operations. We looked at that data set and we said, oh, wow, we have a lot of the, you could call it merchandising attributes of that data as well. And so we also play in um, the merchandising space where we can run analytical models uh, that sit on top of the data sets that we have access to and give upstream producers primarily uh, and oftentimes midstream buyers, you know, what what you should be selling and expecting your barrel um, for based on supply, demand, and pricing. So you guys are factors. more geared towards the crude and natural gas marketers. Definitely. Is mm-hmm. it specific to crude or is it also extended natural nope, gas? No, it's natural gas and NGLs too. Okay. So I love this because this is like a world. I really wish I would have brought in Big George. I don't know if you guys know Big George or not, but Big George is a character. He hosts our Margin Call podcast, uh, which is about to be revived from the ashes like a phoenix. And this guy knows this world so much better than I do. I wish I would have brought him in. Um, <laughs> So this is interesting. Okay. So you guys are, is it, do you, do you perceive it as like data management or is it like analytics of just like how to do your job better as a marketer? Is it a database? Like walk me through that. It depends on the person that you are and what your responsibilities are and the type of company that you work at, right? Like it's not a one size fits all. It's not an apples to apples uh, scenario that we walk into most days. Um, I like to think of, and, and my career has been in technology for energy um, my entire, you know, after I graduated time span. And I always like to approach the technology developments through the lens of like, how do I get this person home in time for dinner, right? How do I make them the rock star within their organization? Mm-hmm. And so you can see it as kind of almost intelligent workspaces where people are doing their jobs better, faster, you know, making more of an impact 
um, within their organization, but also from the organizational lens, you really need everything in one place. You need visibility across your entire asset portfolio. And it's very, very, very difficult to achieve from what I've seen in my So career. without, let's, so let's do this because like I said, I've you know not really done a whole lot with with marketing, uh, with with crude or natural gas marketing particularly. So let's do let's break some things down. So how would you do this job, most of these personas, without y'all's technology? Walk us through the problem. Yeah, the the interesting thing with the problem. So you think about all the attributes associated with a barrel of oil, sulfur density. These always informed what it was worth, where it should go, but people often didn't have real-time visibility into these. And what that meant was that they were forced to make decisions with the data they had, regardless of whether it was accurate or not. And that's kind of, if you think about that, that's a perfect feedback loop for AI where you're forcing people to make decisions. Commodities have to move down the supply chain and they're going to get measured by the counterparty. So you actually get this feedback loop from custody transfer where as that molecule moves down the supply chain, you get to know whether your prediction or estimate was accurate. And historically, no one really went back and checked, okay, if I made a decision where I thought tan was this or sulfur was this or density was this, was that actually accurate based on how my counterparty measured it You know, in my receipt a month later? None of that data was being used. So effectively, what we can do is we can use all those data sets that producers, midstreamers now all have access to, and we can use it to predict the data that they were um, missing, and mm -hmm. we can use it to validate data that they were relying on incorrectly. And to to your point on, um, you know, does this apply to to natural gas as well? That's kind of been one of the interesting things we've seen in our time in this space is the natural gas molecules increasingly less fungible. Crude was never really fungible because you'd get paid more or less based on all those elements. Mm -hmm. Natural gas was historically quite fungible, but now that people care about proof of origin emissions. Those are those are items that we're attaching to the molecule as well to inform that that person's job or the decisions that um, they'll make for investors. Yeah. So it's not necessarily just tracking the quantity, say, of, of, of barrels, for example, but also the quality and the grade of these barrels because you're also being paid on that. Correct. Yeah. Well, and, and exactly. you see it in other supply chains, too. Right. Like you can look at grocery delivery. We, we like to use the analogy of, OK, so. I order a bottle of rum for myself. Well, I'll just call it vodka because everyone knows me. You know I'm a Tito's girl. I'm a Tito's <laughs> girl. Um, I order a bottle of Tito's for myself. I order a six pack of Coke for my kids. The chances that my delivery will show up at my door within a specified time frame for the price that I see in the supermarket and I'll have a bottle of Tito's and a six pack of Coke for my kids, pretty highly likely. Like that's just how it works. But what happens in the oil and gas supply chain is you're more likely to get a Tito's and Coke in a glass mm -hmm. at your door. And and there's nothing you can do about it. It's too late. It's it's an afterthought at that at that point, just because these things are moving 24 hours a day. Would you still drink it, though? I probably would, but my it would be really <laughs> detrimental to my kids. Less Coke for sure is what I'd order. Yeah. I'd be getting daycare calls about my kids for sure. <laughs> No, that's a great, it's a great analogy. Um, so the end users are the marketers. How, so is this done traditionally like in spreadsheets? I mean, how is this, how is this tracked? Because I mean, you guys are being able to plug into, you said various like SCADA sensors and update and inform and create these analytics. So I'm assuming that it's like probably just thrown together in Excel and emailed or. Oh, yeah. And like in Excel models that have been around for like 15 years, like you'll go talk to these guys and you're like, oh, so did you make this model? No, I just inherited it when I started working here. I actually like don't can't even touch the macros in it because it'll tear the whole thing down if I change one thing. Um, and it is very it's also like the human element of trying to do more high value things, trying to look more, you know, forward looking into the future. But we're trapped in this like insane monotony of like data entry, data manipulation, data gathering. And it's not even like the physical aspect of like pulling all the data in one place. It's like how much trust do you have in that data once you see it? When was the last time it was edited? Is it the best version of what you have access to? Who can even verify that for you? Like, is it the source of truth? Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's wild. 
I have so many questions. Really quickly, what are what are each of your respective roles? And then I want to go back and like quickly into like y'all's background so people can kind of understand a little bit more the context of who we're talking to here. Yeah. Um, my role currently I head up strategy and and corp dev. So there's there's some amount of my time that's kind of direct account relationships, uh, senior sponsorships of accounts, some amount of my time that's demand gen. And then a lot of my time is is shortening the sales cycle because what a lot of you know, similar to a number of names you've had on your podcast where a lot of these energy tech businesses are really exciting in terms of, okay, there's there's a massive opportunity here and you're kind of setting up a virtual toll road where a lot of these businesses are making the supply chain more efficient. They take their SaaS mm-hmm. fees as a result. That's kind of every every big exciting business has been a virtual toll road, but at the same time, the, the sales cycle sucks for, for yeah. enterprise software. So I spend a lot of my time setting up network effects and partnerships where going back to kind of your and Kayla's discussion on the data, the interesting thing is we're at a point in the energy industry where more and more stakeholders want and need that data. So whether your board needs it or whether you want to send that to a sustainability report Mm -hmm. or whether you want to send that to a counterparty to show them, hey, here's where that molecule's been um, and here's the emissions profile as a result, Um, those network effects shorten our sales cycle. So I lead... um, a lot of those relationships. And then my, uh, my career, I was an investment banker, um, M&A with Barclays for, for the entirety of my career before coming over. Didn't, uh, didn't find banking stressful enough. So had to, <laughs> had to do a startup. That was going to be my next question. Like, where do you, like, wh- how many hours do you spend at, at a startup versus investment banking? I mean, investment banking is notorious for like, you need to give up working out. You should give up your family. Like you're working, you know, from sunup to sundown. How's that like transition from investment? Like, cause that's not really like a common transition that people make. Usually like once you go, that's what my wife said, like once you go like investment banker, it's like, no, like you're, you're, you've sold your soul to the game and like, you're going to like ride (laughs) banking out forever. Yeah. So the transition to startups is like really interesting. So like, how's that been? It's been, um, it's been really good. I'd say the, tell the the truth, the thing, (laughs) it has been really good. So to your, to your question, what's funny, um, is uh, I mean it. It is about the the same amount of work as I'm sure you know, which is probably um, that's probably more to do with the individual rather mm-hmm. than the job. Like people are just, you know, people that are that are really excited about solving these problems. They're gonna fill the day with if they're working with a fun team solving a big problem. They're gonna fill the day with as much of that as possible. Mm-hmm. So the the work is largely similar. And then I think the kind of the one thing that's, that's the same and the one thing that's different is um, the thing that's the same is for a lot of those those jobs, take investment banking or consulting, um, you have to have you have to be a, a pretty good self-starter and have a lot of awareness, which if you look at kind of a lot of entrepreneurs that have been successful, that's the same thing where you're not going to get set direction from anyone similar to investment banking where your boss, you know, may be on a plane, mm-hmm. but you got to take the, the deal call. Yeah. So you got to be pretty good in terms of, you know, self-starter and self-awareness. So that that part, we've actually hired some ex-bankers, ex-consultants, and we found that translates pretty well. Uh, the part that's different, that's interesting, um, that I'd be interested if you see this with your team is how much, um, it's it's almost a reverse trade on energy where you realize how much energy you need to provide to the the team in a startup first at a lot of banking or consulting relationships it's um you you're kind of part of this this large machine and there's there's more of a trade there where you know what your job is everyone knows what their job is and you don't need to provide a lot of you know additional motivation or mission beyond that startups are are interesting where you know every day you believe in this vision and the the problem that can be solved in terms of making the supply chain more efficient and it's about getting your team to to build into that that larger vision because their path isn't as identically mm-hmm. clear as it would be in banking, where you know they do their three years as an analyst, three years as associate. You gotta effectively walk them through every day what that future looks like for for them and the industry, which that takes a lot of um, you know emotional energy, which is kind of a different yeah. uh, skill set. I think that's yeah, I think that's really really interesting that you brought that up because it's it's so timely with. We've gone through rapid expansion, and I think we we plan on probably doubling through this year. And as you're growing the people and expanding the culture from all walks of life and into different roles 
and maintaining, I guess, the kind of the soul of the company and like what is our internal narrative, but also like how does that translate into like when we put out content for a living? Like how does that translate into into the ether, into the world, um, and into to like how we are perceived and our missions and things like that? And so I think it's yeah, it's a lot of like, I mean, obviously you've got you know your standard meetings and stuff, but I think with a lot of our meetings, it's it's very much us constantly reiterating like yeah. why we're doing what we're doing yeah. and i think that people start to understand that and then it's not just a job it's a it's a movement and it gives you like this like sense of purpose that like we're actually it's so funny we started in a closet on the hall like i said this is supposed to be just a fun <laughs> podcast we show up we make some jokes we you know talk about startups or whatever and now it's like there's like this whole like mission element to it of like hey this is a great platform and now we're able to you know, actually make change, whether it be the energy policy or with the Bitcoin stuff that we're doing now with monetary policy. Uh, it's so nuts. So I, I love that you brought that up. And I love that like you're aware of that um, as to being just maybe a cog in the in the machine and in investment banking. Yeah. Like you could be, I think that everybody is a huge part of that driving force of just reiterating what is that kind of internal narrative? Like, why are we here? Why are we doing what we're doing? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think you have so much, so much of a stronger culture that way we so, call mark the honey badger for what it's the worth honey badger go on honey badger doesn't give a shit yeah. he's out there like cutting through the bs growing the business every day sometimes we don't even like hear from him for days but we know that he's like out there evangelizing the mission having you know coffees meeting people shaking hands kissing babies i love it that's so much what my day is i think our day to day the honey badger this. day I'm, yeah I'm honey badger day man <laughs> just going out there and just storytelling and preaching the gospel every startup's gonna have one man like you're not gonna grow unless you have a honey badger you you know so kayla Kayla, what's your what's your background i'm I'm assuming you're not from investment banking no i have to live up to all of the things mark promises (laughs) in terms of (laughs) technical (laughs) capabilities um i currently look after our software development teams and our product teams um my background is i was a geologist by education Funny enough, I, you know, transitioned out of school, figured out, like, I actually don't like rocks as much as I thought. <laughs> and it's, like, less cool than going on field trips. Than- I've always been so curious about people who are geologists. Like, do they grow up just being like, man, I, like, my four-year-old loves rocks. I'm like, is that just something they just, like, never get over? Where they're like, I love rocks so much. I'm going to study geology. Well, I'll tell you how I actually got into it. So my dad is an operator in South Texas. So. Yeah like spent most of my childhood riding around in the cab of his truck, going to all the courthouses, running title, all that kind of stuff with him. Like couldn't figure out why I couldn't talk to everyone in the courthouse, like tell them who we were and what we were doing there. And I went to A&M and I went in as a business major. I couldn't get a course at the time that I needed. My roommate had a geology 101 lab book and she had already filled out all of the answers and it had been graded. So I was like, Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. And so I took, you know, the first few courses and just kind of found it to be my thing. It came easier to me than business. Um, and then, you know, graduated, went into the industry working for a software startup. We got bought by IHS. Um, so spent just over a decade at IHS, primarily on the upstream portfolio, mm-hmm. doing um, interpretation software, looking at seismic data, planning wells, all that kind of stuff with customers. Uh, went to RS Energy Group, looked at all of the asset valuation side of the business, mm-hmm. field development planning. Um, and then, you know, we had our exit to GenStar Capital. And that's when I was a reference call for someone at Valadier who was in the interview process at Valadier. And they called me back three days later and said, you know, hey, what do you think about coming over and setting up our product and development teams? And this is our mission. And, you know, I took one look at the business and the culture. I was like, absolutely. Strap me in. I'm ready for the rocket ship. That's so awesome. So so from from startup, they had acquired by IHS. And then I don't know if IHS did the merger with Marketit probably during your tenure. Yep. Um, yep. And then from there to RS Energy, and then RS Energy getting essentially acquired slash merged with Inveris yep. via GenStar. Hell of a career. I've seen a lot, You've man. You've seen a lot. Now you're, now you're here. <laughs> and I've survived all of it. What is some of the things through through that? I mean, it, now you're, it's like, it's like the, like everything comes full circle. Started in a startup, now you ended in a startup. 
you went through companies that have probably, I mean, IHS has got, I don't know, at least 5,000 employees, 10,000 employees, oh, maybe yeah. even more. Yeah. Just because it's, it's so big. And now it's, now it's merged with, with S and P global yeah. and, and probably one of the largest companies in the world in terms of people. Right. That corporate life. Right. And then also like, I don't know when you were there during RS, like, was it more startup-y at RS or was it already kind of becoming more of like this bigger behemoth? I'm yeah. just kind of curious, like, what was like, what's like some of your bigger takeaways? And then like now you coming back into a startup, like, is that seems refreshing? Yeah. I, and I think it's definitely, um, you know, something that you have to experience and make your own personal choices as you yeah. go through, you know, I mean, Working at a startup, my first job, I didn't even know like what the working world was like. I just knew I didn't want to be a functional geologist. <laughs> so it's <laughs> like, yes, I, sounds good. And I didn't realize how special it was because I had never seen anything else, right? Mm. And the culture and the camaraderie that you experience in a startup is a lot more centered around trust. And, and those relationships tend to last longer mm -hmm. than most because- you're kind of in the thick of it. Like you're, it's not all rosy. You're working on really messy stuff at the end of the day and there are challenges and you're getting through it together. Um, the larger organizations have some of the best training and mentoring and growth available to mm -hmm. an individual. But regardless of where you end up at the end of the day, it's still your own personal brand. Yeah, And it's still, you know, the business relationships that you personally make, you know, you holding yourself to a certain standard, you mm -hmm. delivering a certain quality of work doesn't really matter where you are. Um, I do tend to function better in smaller organizations, but that's just because I love autonomy. I, I just like wake up craving autonomy every day and just taking something, looking at it really practically and then just like getting shit done. Mm -hmm. Instead of like, I'm not going to go ask someone for permission if if it's the right thing to do. So, yeah, it's been interesting. I think this is, this is like an interesting kind of segue into, um, I know you guys have recently closed a new round. And so I think that you guys are going through another period of probably rapid growth. I know that just in my conversations with you guys, let's just call it over the last six months. I know you guys have grown rapidly. Um, and so let's kind of go into like, let's dive into the story of, I don't know who's been there necessarily longer, but let's go into the story of like the founding of, of Valadier. Uh, I know we talked about a little bit about the founder and stuff, but maybe kind of the early formative years and then let's kind of bring it up to today. Yeah. So the, the early years, I mean, I joined as kind of the sixth or seventh employee. Um, and there were only two of us. And so you were really rolling the dice. You're like, you go <laughs> home to your wife. You're like, listen, I know I've got, badger, this, man. I've got this great investment banking career. I'm crushing it. And I'm going to throw it all away, potentially, to go to the startup. Yeah. And will ours be better? No. No. Yeah. Ours will yeah. not be better. I got Any other like, questions? You get a bit of fly on the wall for that conversation. Your wife's probably like, oh, my God, what are you doing? Yeah, she's like, I don't think it's going to go well because you don't seem super smart. This yeah. seems like a this seems like a bad seems like you make bad decisions. Yeah. All right, so you so you make the you make the leap. So you're employee number seven. What, what then? Yeah, so employee number seven, we were in kind of a, a shared workspace in um, in Calgary. Which to to your uh, comment, that was a big contrast because um, so they they had a bunch of dogs in the the workspace. So you'd be on these calls and dogs would be just barking in your face. There was, you know, one call where like he just went to the washroom on my leg and yeah. I'm like, what a, what a trade, what an interesting <laughs> trade this has been. But, I used to be someone yeah. now look at me. <laughs> but the, I mean, the, the really exciting thing is, so you start in those early days and, and you're effectively going to clients and talking about the, the broader mission, which everyone understands where, okay, energy molecules have to move every day. And people don't know what they are. And so they're they're making decisions with incomplete information. And there's there's a massive economic loss there and environmental loss there. The the thing um increasingly for for new employees as as we get larger, we're we're a hundred plus employees now. I always um describe it to them because especially for the the employees that are further away from the energy space, as you know, those when you see a story on a tanker that gets to South Korea or Singapore and it gets turned away because it's the wrong quality crude it's very easy to picture in your head, whoa, that must have cost someone a lot of money. Dude, that's so mind-blowing. Think about like the fuel cost and time cost. and it, like It's unbelievable. Yeah. And people are worried about, you know, they're doing these massive projects to, to um, 
you know, reduce emissions globally in other industries. And meanwhile, you've just driven a tanker halfway across the world and then you have to drive it back because you didn't have the accurate data. Like if, if you actually want to reduce emissions, like working in the energy supply chains. pissed that crew would be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I just sailed all the way across yeah. the world because you got the spreadsheet wrong. Yeah. Someone's getting yeah. tossed overboard. So it's, uh, yeah, you, you think about that problem. Happens all the time at, the, at a smaller scale. And I mean, the exciting thing back then, so we were we were pitching that to industry and and the the first names to adopt and understand us were the the large midstreamers cuz you you think about them kind of this this high volume business where quality impacts um what the product is worth for them or their customers and even what they can put on their systems like mm-hmm. if, if you think about some of these names where they want to widen the density specs yep. to capture more volumes cuz it's overbuilt in their basin you have to be very good at predicting what that density is with each new volume you tie into the system so the the midstreamers were kind of the the first to adopt us in terms of pulling in all their their quality data, auditing it, and then predicting the data they don't have. And then over the the next couple of years, we added um, producers, and we we did a big raise in um, Silicon Valley led by by Wing and Greylock. We added um, producers. You, can, you and- can't just wait. You can't just gloss over that. You can't just. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Combo Curve. If you haven't heard. Aries and PhD went around and Combo Curve is in. Combo Curve is the cloud-based operating system for energy companies. The single integrated platform helps your engineering teams become more agile, precise, and efficient than ever before. For the first time ever, you now generate type curves and forecast thousands of wells accurately and in a fraction of the time. Oh, and it can automatically run these forecasts every single day. What I love most about the Combo Curve team is their work ethic and actually caring about their customers Every time I talk to the team, Armand, Jeremy, everybody else over there, they're reinvesting into growing the development team to tackle any challenges that their clients may be facing. But don't take my word for it. Go over to combocurve.com, read the dozens of testimonials on their website from clients like Arm Energy, Laredo Petroleum, Rock and W Minerals, and many more. Request a demo, and these guys will get you taken care of. You can just name drop <laughs> Greylock, and then we're like, so oh, used to it gonna... now. We're like, oh yeah, the Wing and Greylock guys. All right, let's get into like, okay, what was the first raise? So the the first effectively seed one um, was led by the Sallyport guys, which which okay. you probably know. So yep. Kyle and Doug, um, they they led that as well as um, a number of industry professionals. And so that was kind of right after I joined. We did that that seed raise, um, and then um, effectively a, a year and a half later, we did a fifteen million dollar um, raise out of Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was led by uh, Wing and then um, Greylock, which that's been um, that's been an interesting advantage for us on the the programmers and developers side, because one of the things that that I find is it's tough in the in the energy industry spaces. You can have really great ideas, but you sometimes can't find the and I've seen this with peers that have really smart people determined and they they're focused on a good problem, but they can't get the technical capacity within their team to actually execute on it. Um, and so we kind of went, if you see a lot of kind of energy tech names, they'll do their, their series a raise with, with a lot of big kind of traditional energy PE backers, which that's great. Cause it gives you a somewhat captive market for clients. They can make mm-hmm. intros for you, et cetera. We kind of took a slightly different route where we went to the, the Valley and we walked wing and Greylock through, Hey, there's this massive problem in the energy supply chain. And it's one of the largest undersolved problems in in kind of enterprise SaaS that's currently available. And, you know, not to mention you have a ton of data and you have a natural feedback loop because everyone measures the product as it goes downstream. And so it took a little while longer than a direct energy raise to educate them. But once once they were on board, it was a big help because if you think about hiring programmer and developer talent, they they are very happy to say, okay, you know, this is a Greylock backed company. Mm Maybe I don't know much about the energy industry, but no one's going to give me a hard time for for making yeah. a switch here. For yeah. for those who don't know, I mean, Greylock, I would consider to be one of those uh, top tier Silicon Valley VC firms, you know, quote unquote, kind of like almost like blue chip VC firms. You got them, you've got Andreessen Horowitz, Sequoia, Benchmark, like these are like the granddaddy VCs, right? Yeah. And so it's like, it's kind of a major vote of confidence to to get backed by these guys. I'm curious, I love the fact that you're kind of unpacking this. Um, that's one of the challenges. If if you're an energy tech founder and you're looking to raise capital, you have a couple of decisions you have to make. And it's like, 
you know, do you go to somebody that is industry and, you know, you, you like you talked about, you get the Sallyport guys, you've got the Montrose Lane guys, you've got um, a lot of other people in the space and then you can kind of move up to the mid-level private equity. There's a lot of options there too. And it's easy because they kind of, they understand energy, right? Um, I think that does come at a little bit of a, I think there's a, there's a, there's a cost there associated with it because I don't think that necessarily, and maybe this is just geographics or whatever, but like you can go to Silicon Valley and typically probably get more of a quote unquote founder friendly valuation and raise. Um, but you do have that educational hurdle. So I'm curious, like let's unpack that a little bit because we've done that. We're in the middle of a raise as well. We've yeah. talked to a lot of people in uh, Silicon Valley, really California as a whole and New York. And anybody who's not from energy, like it's really hard for them to understand even what we do, right? And I feel like what you guys do is, is pretty complex for somebody who's just not a native to the industry. So like, how did you overcome this? Whether it be through, is it just like, are you just honey badgering the shit out of this? Like, are you just really good at storytelling? Or was there like some kind of key things that you felt like really helped kind of push that over? Or... Or is somebody like Greylock, I mean, these do these guys just get it? I mean, maybe that's a, a factor as well. Yeah, so it, that's a great question. I think there, there are two interesting dynamics at play. I mean, at a high level, yeah, it takes a ton of education. You're effectively deciding that you're going to spend more time educating a, a tier of investors that's very good for one part of your business, but that does take a lot of resources from you during the raise, but there are there are kind of two interesting considerations there. And the, the first um, one that we found, and, and this continues to, to resonate with tech-focused investors, is the, the inventory analog. So if you think about a lot of the big kind of software-focused um, businesses that took an industry that was, that was very opaque and inefficient, the first thing they all did was they inventoried everything. Um, so you look at what Amazon did with books, you look at what eBay did with um, the used goods market. Those, those things, when they first were pitched, those sound like exceptionally difficult industries to inventory. But that's the first step is you create that data layer that's effectively a record of everything. And that allows you to start making very efficient decisions mm -hmm. about where those items should go. And this just doesn't exist in the world's largest supply chain. So I found a lot of them, once we kind of went through the complexities of the energy space and we said, hey, no one knows what's in these tanks. Um, like you may have measured that at the the inlet to a facility, but you may have only measured one out of 300 data points that may impact what you should do with that next. When you walk them through that problem, they go, whoa, so there's no there's no inventory for the the world's largest supply chain. And I mean, it for us in industry, that makes perfect sense. Like we know how much money is available to be made for even somewhat accurate data on, okay, this is how many barrels are here and that's what the quality is. But for people outside industry, it takes a bit of education. But once they recognize that, they say, okay, if there's going to be a large SaaS business in that space, inventorying is probably one of the first things that that needs to get solved. And then I think the the other component that... Did that, you guys position the story that way? Yeah. Or is, it, or, is it, or is this kind of like your own internal kind of strategy? I'm kind of curious. I'm just really no, curious in positioning. Oh, yeah. So that that's how we think about it. Um as well that that's always how we've we've framed it in yeah. our mind because that that's kind of the core problem and it, it goes back to once you think about the problem that way all the the different tools we provide are kind of pretty easy to frame in your head so if you think about us where um so if you log into our software there are about 300 plus attributes you can attach to a molecule at a given point in time and space once you start to think about that and all the different ways you can use that in terms of, okay, what's my molecule actually worth? Um, you know, am I getting paid fairly? Where should I send it next? Or they, it's very easy to picture that, that as a solution. Or if you think about something like line fill, where, okay, if I want to figure out what my line fill is, even though it's not being measured, then I have to have really good inventory on the inlet and outlet. And then I'm effectively doing balancing to decide what's there uh, without putting a meter there. Again, you're like, well, that's that's just an inventory problem um, mm -hmm. that I'm solving. So that, that's how we think about it, because um, similar to a lot of these these energy focused SaaS businesses, if you don't have a central way of of framing what you're you're trying to solve in your head, it's very easy to get pulled by industry in different directions, um, which can become kind of dangerous for the core 
focus and story. Were you able to overcome this educational barrier and tell the story simply through a deck or did you guys kind of go more like memo style? Like we almost have like different materials depending on who kind of the, the, the investor is going to be, if it's from energy, like there's a lot of things we can kind of gloss over. Yeah. There's no point in talking about it, but if you're going to Silicon Valley, it's like, well, we need a little bit of context. And so then second question would be like, how long did it take something like Greylock to get it? Like the green light. So I'd say for most of those names, I mean, it ended up being kind of several weeks in practice, which is, mm-hmm. as you know, that's, that's, that's longer than those names usually take. Because yeah. um, like a lot of those, those names are equipped to, to write checks very quickly. And to be fair to them, they see so many analogs in a lot of these businesses that mm-hmm. they can understand right away, okay, this is the type of um, you know, problem that needs to be solved. And this is the way I've seen it solved by a peer. So I can, I can support you in your pursuit. They had to take, you know, a little while longer with us. And we, um, we increasingly find that um, we, uh, and, and we do this with, with clients as well. I'd be interested if, if you find this is we often handicap ourselves by sharing too much information. And it's one of those things where you're like, oh, this is so complex. I'm going to go through 100 pages mm-hmm. to, so that they understand the problem. But most people that just, you know, confuses them um, partially because, you know, energy Illiteracy globally is a, a huge problem, yeah. but also because, you know, if you get, if you get too deep and technical, you kind of miss, okay, what's that, what's that actual thing that, that you're solving and, and mm-hmm. how's that applied to, to other industries, other things we've seen. And as soon as you go too deep, you kind of lose that story. And it, it's true if, you know, employees, clients, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, and, and like you really, at least, you know, with our latest round two, it's really important to be very simple in how you explain how it's done today, right? So like this is done in spreadsheets, eight tabs per spreadsheet, one person working 80 hours a week to, you know, hand enter this information. Mm-hmm. And then you present the vision of how it could be done. And then you relate that to how it's been done previously in other verticals, right? Like that seemed to be like the kind of the one, two, three punch. Yeah. Um, and then you kind of have to like wrap it all up and show how it's a competitive moat. Like, how are you going to be so entrenched that it's going to be very difficult from like a product-led growth perspective to compete and and build that type of system? Mm-hmm. Are do you guys do you have any competitors, or do you see any competitors out this bit, or are you literally competing against the way things have always been done in spreadsheet? A lot of it is DIY, but that's yeah. also been my career in most software as a service type yeah. of thing, where it's like. I mean, my favorite tagline is like, if I had a dollar for every spreadsheet worth of yeah, I mean, you have things people, I've seen. Yeah. You have people <laughs> internally that are dissatisfied with no solutions. And so they, you know, they muster up a little bit of technical skill, whether it be in a, a spreadsheet or maybe as a, you know, they kind of teach themselves how to code some stuff. They hack together some internal solution and that becomes the Bible moving forward. And then it's like, if you want to rip that out, you're hurting their feelings because they spent so <laughs> yeah, much time yeah, yeah. They'll like die building by it. it. And yeah. that's one of the things that I think is going to become more and more of a challenge um, for SaaS companies is dealing with things like no code uh, or low code. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's lowering the barriers to entry to be able to create whatever you want. And so. Well, and especially in energy too, right? Like I've, uh, we've looked at citizen development opportunities and things like that. And um it's very difficult to find a sweet spot just because there are so many safety and environmental factors at play. You know, I mean, I, I never like to sound overly dramatic, but if a new software spits out an incorrect result and someone acts on it and it blows something up, that's why we're so risk averse, right? Where it's like, Oh, well, if I'm trying to order my groceries and I get the wrong bunch of bananas, I'm not going to die. No one's going to die. Everything's going to be fine. So you mm-hmm. can iterate. You can take more risk. People are way more willing to adopt things that don't have serious implications. So you you alluded to the the latest raise. I think we said we can we can talk about it. Yeah, we yeah. can talk about All it. Right. Yeah. Who wants to Who wants to take lead? <laughs> I'm gonna. I always default to the honey badger on the raise. <laughs> sure, honey badger. Um, yeah. So our. Um, our latest raise, which we closed, um, so U.S. $43 million. Um, it was led by um, BlackRock, Mercuria, and then participation by Wing and Greylock as, as okay. well, which is really nice. Cause, I mean, BlackRock's and, a huge name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that's actually um, one of the things that I think is, is super exciting for um, 
the sector in general is all those entities are starting to understand the the value of of energy data for all stakeholders. So if you think about us where okay, here's the the inventory of all the molecules across the supply chain. If you're a, a BlackRock or any of those large entities, you're starting to say, "Hey, that's going to inform, you know, what my what who's in what ETF." If if I can say hey, they, these are responsible molecules that this entity um, produced. These were the emissions associated with them. And, and you can start adding all sorts of other attributes to the molecule long-term, water usage, land usage, all these these items that were before people only cared about a couple things on a mm-hmm. molecule. Now global stakeholders care about 300 different trade-offs, 400 different trade-offs. I think seeing that that level of interest where people say, okay, those audit trails need to get out there, whether they go to you know governments, fund managers, whether they go into your sustainability report, whether they go to the regulator and people. And I mean, you you see this with um, the energy crisis globally currently is people have made historically very bad decisions in energy because, mm-hmm. well, one, it's it's I mean, it's difficult. It's a difficult space to understand and, and yourselves play a part in, you know, educating everyone on that. But two, just a lot of people didn't have data and it, or they had no data or they had data that was inaccurate and the the kind of broader mission of getting that inventory to everyone so that they can say okay anytime we can export a north american gas molecule globally because you can see that okay the global gas molecule has about five times the fugitive emissions that's a trade we should make every single day and you kind of need an inventory layer um same's true of oil ngls you kind of need an inventory layer to start to make those um those decisions so we're, we're pretty excited about one the the raise is is great we've you know we get to to continue to provide our clients with new tools as a result of that but also kind of the broader buy-in that energy data and running that supply chain as efficiently as possible for the next several decades is kind of one of the the more interesting missions in the world over the the next couple of years so we're we're super excited about the raise and the partners so you guys are over 100 people now? Yeah. Right? What's the what's the kind of um, plan for, for 2022? I mean, you guys are going to grow headcount even more? I mean, Clay, the Rose, like what, what are you guys going to be using the money on? Is it mostly just people? Yeah, it's 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 people. Exactly like any uh, yeah. any enterprise SaaS company. It's, yeah, um, yeah well, largely Kayla's, Kayla's team for sure. <laughs> we'll get yeah. to expand. Well, and, and you know, it's been interesting because when I originally started you know, we were getting into the raise and all that kind of stuff. And it was really, there's a lot of activism going on in the space. And I have seen it from a different lens of people want transparency in the energy supply chain because they want to reward good behavior, not Mm -hmm. because they want to, you know, crucify the offenders of it. But it's almost, you know, here's another analogy. Am I going to analogy myself into, you know, some weird rabbit hole today? Um, it's like an organic sticker on an apple. I don't, I don't know what that apple was sprayed with. I don't know where it was grown from. I don't know how it got to my grocery store, but I know I'm willing to pay a 30 cent premium Mm -hmm. on it because it's organic, because there has been some sort of standard and regulation as to how that was grown, harvested, delivered through the supply chain, um, that upholds to my, you know, personal values, because at the end of the day, the PR assault against the energy industry is based on personal values that people are, you know, raising their voice for and things like that. And we as an energy industry have to, you know, embrace the transparency that is eventually coming into our supply chain, whether we like it or not, and I, take I advantage love, of the rewards. I love this segue because it's going to allude to what you you said a second ago, Mark, and, and Kayla, I think you just kind of dovetailed on that was... You look at certain places, I think California and Colorado are great examples of uh, more state regulations that makes it harder to either, um, you know, drill oil and gas or just produce oil and gas. And so they're not able to meet their own demand. And so therefore they have to import it. And there's so many cases. Uh, our buddy Mike Umbro puts out tons of content on LinkedIn talking about, you know, California, the, you know, the super strict regulations. You can't have internal combustion engine cars by a certain year they're banning small uh small motors um for like lawnmowers and things like that and therefore not able to meet their own uh demands uh based on some of the regulations with oil and gas so long story short they're importing in dirtier energy 
into California than what they can produce domestically. And it's the same thing that's happening yeah. in California. And then I think it's also interesting when you look at how much we're importing from Russia currently. I don't know if this episode is going to go up, but we're still in the middle of this Russian-Ukraine war. Um, but we import a ton of uh, oil and gas from Russia, particularly for um, powering New England whenever we could, if we had the lawmakers allowed us to build the infrastructure to pipe out um, particularly natural gas from places like Appalachia to the port or to be able to be liquefied. Now we can export that into not just Europe and provide them with, I think, a much better source of, of energy, probably a cleaner source of energy, um, but also probably more like secure. I don't think we're going to be taking over the world anytime soon, like Putin's trying to do. Um, so I think it's interesting. I think that you guys, through data and through that transparency, it's like, yes, you are also able to kind of, you know, maybe producers able to get that premium on, let's just call it quote unquote, maybe res responsibly source gas or whatever. But at the mm -hmm. same time, I think you're able to combat energy illiteracy a little bit by showcasing that, hey, some of these regulations are kind of ass backwards and it's actually much worse. Like the implications of the regulations are much worse than if you were to just allow states like California and Colorado to just produce what they have in their state. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was my soapbox. Well, and I think that you guys can play a huge part in that. Well, and and yeah, and you've seen it before, right? Like we we oftentimes talk about, okay, well, methane is just the latest externality that's getting priced and then ultimately regulated into mm -hmm. the market. It's the same thing that happened with sulfur back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. There is no like there's no VP of sulfur at any ENP company. There is no head of sulfur management. There's no software specifically for sulfur management. It's just managed as part of the business day to day. No one blinks an eye over it. And it's also kind of the same thing that you've seen in the evolution of some of the upstream stuff, right? Like when I first started, it was geosteering wells. You know, how do you control the well bore once you get outwards of a mile long? And and it was really less about like finding the oil and gas and more about like how do we cost effectively produce it out of the ground. Same thing with frac. I used to look at plans and even some of my dad's wells, <laughs> I would say, OK, so um, you did all of this really high science stuff. You, you know, pulled core, you did all these studies and you're still going to just frack the shit out of your well. Like you're just going to frack every interval, mm -hmm. <laughs> like no design, no but it again, it's like a maturity curve and you have to be willing to test it. You have to be willing to take those findings and then action it going forward to where now if you look at the upstream sector and really even into the midstream and refining, it's the emissions stuff of how can you make it cleaner? How can you be more transparent with what you're doing to be more responsible? And a lot of companies are doing fantastic, really impressive stuff. I think there's a huge set of companies that are waiting to see, okay, how's this playbook going to work out? What playbook can I follow? Because they don't want to over-design because they're more capital constraint than some of the ones that are being leading edge on it. So it's just kind of a, an adoption, typical maturity curve that you're seeing. Um, and ultimately things get regulated in. And I have seen way more traction with the UN and the EPA and things like that. If you look at the last 18 months compared to the last 15 years, of adopting and implementing new standards and regulations, they're being a lot more realistic, um, allowing people to try new things, leverage new technologies as part of it as well, um, compared to what I've seen historically. It's really encouraging. Yeah, to um, to your comment on on some of the the jurisdictions that you know effectively they're they're capping supply by being overly restrictive on on regulations. One of the places where we see that lack of data is is you know actually most apparent is um on the esg side where every every esg report focuses on entirely different things and it's clear that that's just the data that that company has access to where you know one company leans into water one leans into land one it's their relationship with the community and it's probably just whoever's putting that report is like okay well this is the thing that i can talk about so that's going to be 12 pages but the the interesting thing that that does is it's not that lack of data, even in that part of the, the business that's newer to a lot of these firms, that lack of data is not allowing them to, to look at their decisions holistically to, 
to um, when you think about some of those jurisdictions. And even within a company, if you think about it, uh, um, I was in a discussion with uh, a ESG VP the other day, and my argument was that a lot of these companies and jurisdictions have focused so much on the environmental that they've actually they've they've um, failed on their long term social obligations to the community. Like if if you think about everyone in Europe right now, particularly Ukraine, they'd probably much prefer if we just focused on producing as much energy as humanly possible. That was our social obligation, likely mm-hmm. even a governance obligation based on how some entities um, review kind of those those broader obligations to the community. But that was probably more important than the environmental. And those things are some of those things are in conflict, but people just don't have the data to to balance them out. So I, I fully agree with your points where these people are making decisions based on what they can see, as opposed to kind of how complex and interconnected the the energy space is. Yeah, I think that it's the kind of on an ending note, I think that the value that you guys are going to bring is is so obvious in terms of to who the end users are in terms of bringing that transparency to make these better decisions. But I do think that there is something else there to be said as a as a better source of truth for hopefully correcting bad energy policy that we have today. And so I don't know how we uh, work together on that, but I think we should make something happen. Mark, thank you so much for coming out from uh, from Calgary. Thank you to Canada for letting him out, let him back in. <laughs> uh, Kayla, it was great seeing you again as well. Thank you for being here. Yep. Uh, I'm super excited about you guys. Uh, I think I'm, I'm super bullish on uh, the concept uh, and what you guys are working on. I think you guys are going to blow the doors off this. So it's super exciting for, for you guys. It's super exciting for Energy Tech as a whole. I'm so glad we got to chat today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for Absolutely. having us on. All right, guys, take two seconds. Um, I don't know. Go, go look at our website or something. Tell us what you think. We'll catch you on the next episode. Come, 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 come.